Hello, my name is Brad Henderson. I am producer of one of uh, this commentary for uh, Yuli's The Boogeyman with Mr. Uh, Terrell Tannen, who edited and produced the picture. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. And just to kind of get right into this, how did you get in touch and start working with, uh, you know, Yuli and Suki? Well, the, the Boogeyman was the very first feature film I was ever involved with. I had a documentary film company in Washington, D.C., and I had hired David Sperling uh, as a cameraman on several of my documentaries. And he had met with Uli and Suki uh, about the Boogeyman in the conception stage, and they were going to write a script together. And they, read, they wrote the script, and then David contacted me and said that, uh, you know, they'll be needing an editor. And uh, I, he knew that my goal was to make feature films and eventually move to Hollywood. And so he introduced me to Uli and Suki uh, one night in New York. And uh, we all went, we had dinner and then went down and looked at the location in Maryland, which was a farm belonging to Suki's aunt and uncle. Uh, the uncle was Paul Nitze, who was a, uh, uh, I don't know if you know who he was, but he was instrumental in the writing of a strategic uh, arms agreements for four presidents from Truman all the way up to Reagan. And they lived on this farm where we shot the film. And so Uli then hired me and I agreed to uh, work on the film as an editor uh, for participation in the film. And he made me a producer as well. And we all showed up on the farm and started to shoot. And it was a, every day was a learning experience for me because I really, because as I said, I knew nothing about making a feature film and uh, was fascinated with the whole process. But I also learned how instinctual filmmaking is. Uh, when you, when you're there, and you see what's going to happen on screen, you know exactly where the camera should be, what should happen on the camera, and when to cut. So uh, it, was, it was fun, the whole thing. And it was very unusual doing it with Uli and Suki and the like, because it was like a, it was like a family outing. First of all, I mean, uh, a lot of Suki's family and friends were involved in the making of the movie, and uh, I became a part of that. And we all had fun. I mean, it wasn't like I've been involved with a number of movies since then, and nothing has ever been quite like it, like the experience of working with Uli and Suki and uh, Dave and Philip and all of those people. Uh, it's been, uh, it's much larger now, you know, rather than having a dozen people on a crew, you have 150 and uh, it's all unionized and uh, it's, it's quite different and it lacks a lot of the spontaneity and just a lot of the fun. So uh, anyway, we uh, <clears throat> this scene, this here is Gillian Gordon, who is a good friend of Suki's and also the production manager on the project. And that was her friend, Howard Grant, who played the boogeyman. And uh, <clears throat> so they wrote the script and the script was a, uh, uh, Uli, he didn't, he, he brought a European sensibility to an American, a rural American uh, environment. And uh, it was really interesting for all of us because we saw that Uli, the background he'd come from in Germany, uh, realism didn't play a very large part in the films. Uh, and he brought that to this film uh, where you'll notice throughout a lot of the dialogue 
uh, isn't necessarily very realistic, uh, nor, and some of it seems very anachronistic. And um, also, unlike what, how people of that time frame and uh, that place in the rural South would talk, but um, it it was it made it gave the film its own personality and, and, and a strange sensibility, uh, where it was um, people were attracted to that because it didn't seem real. I mean, none of it seemed real, and that made the film, in my opinion, unique. Uh, no, so. absolutely. Yeah, that, that's something that you know Yuli was very good at for a lot of his work, but especially the boogeyman, because you're right, he brought in kind of a European aspect to like this Louisiana, <laughs> like, well, you know, Maryland, uh, yeah, in this case, hot, yeah. uh, hot, hot, uh, hot summers. Um, but yeah, I mean, you could tell that he was obviously inspired by, you know, like Halloween. Um, and then yes. also Italian films, because just, yes. the, just the lighting in this is very reminiscent to uh, old Italian films. And Right, right. And he was, he, well, Uli was, was he wanted to, he wanted to make what he thought would be a, a, a quintessential American film, but with a European sensibility. Uh, and he was taken by the success of some of these horror films of the 1970s. And uh, and he loved them. I mean, Halloween is the, the best example of that. But also Charles Kaufman's Mother's Day was another influence for him, as well as Wes Craven's films, Last House on the Left. Uh, and uh, he and he wanted to 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 try and create something that was similar to those that would have the same success as those, but would have its own unique, distinct personality, <clears throat> which he did. <clears throat> now, all of these all of these characters in the beginning were mostly people who lived on the farm uh, or worked on the farm. Uh, the kids were local kids who lived in the area. This is in Bell Alton, Maryland, uh, on the farm. Uh, all of those kids and Raymond Boyden, who plays Kevin later on, his family lived on the farm and worked on the farm. Uh, so it, uh, all of it became like a family environment and a family effort. Now, see, this is just straight from hell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It works, though. It works. And it just, yeah. uh, it just, just as well as the framing of, of this film and, like I said, the lighting and the shadow shadow play. Um, and also, I mean, we, we kind, you kind of hinted on it earlier. There is kind of this fever, dreamish, nightmarish aspect uh, to the film. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it eventually kind of overtakes the movie. It, it settles in as as we go through it, um, which I always yeah. found um, very fascinating about this one. And this is David Sperling. This was David David's lighting. He liked this uh, high contrast, uh, uh, splattered lighting, uh, and Uli Uli liked it quite a bit as well uh, to create a moody effect. Yeah, and I think it did so quite effectively. Yes. Now this, uh, <laughs> the mirror, the infamous mirror, you know, with uh, capturing the murder. Yeah, which will. We'll yeah, we, uh, this, all of that, I mean, creating these, um, I'll get to that later about uh, the editing of this, of the movie uh, when we got to Hollywood. But um, this is also in uh, Bell Alton around all of the tobacco fields. 
it was a beautiful farm that we shot at. I mean, like a 350 acre farm on the waterfront on the Eastern shore of Maryland. Just gorgeous. And now this was, uh, this was property that, you know, like you were saying that Su Suki's uh, family owned and yes, I mean, she, her aunt, she yeah, still her lives aunt. in Maryland too. I'm sorry, who does? I think Suki still lives in Maryland. No, Suki lives in Maine. Maine, that's right. I'm sorry. Yeah, Maine. Yeah. This, but this was on her aunt and uncle's farm on Maryland, where they she spent a lot of time growing up, going to visit her mother's sister, and her mother is in the film too, Mother Felicity. She plays Aunt Helen, and her brother Nick plays Willie. And you will see in this scene here, uh, Paul Nitze and uh, his wife, Aunt Ruthie, are in the scene as extras. Uh, right, there he is with the white hair and the suit and the glasses. That's <laughs> Paul Nitze who owned the farm and his wife, Ruthie, is next to him <laughs> singing in church. And there's Nick and Ron. Ron... Uh, was an actor who lived in Rhode Island, Middletown, Rhode Island. And Suki, and that's Suki's mother playing Aunt Helen next to Ron. Felicity. Now you're saying, obviously, this is a big family affair. What, what was kind of the morale on the set like with this? Because it just seems kind of a very, and you said you well, haven't really experienced that again, just a very friendly, family-oriented uh well, it's where everyone did, everyone, like I said, wore many hats. People did a lot. This is my voice here in the uh, confessional. I am the priest that she's confessing to. <laughs> I did a couple of voices throughout the film. Whenever we had no one, no actors available, I did it. I sat in. Uh, and I'm taking her confession here. Uh, but uh, the, um, you know, we even add... Um, this house here was called the Smith House, and that's where a lot of the crew stayed during the shooting. And we would have dinners there, and everyone would take turns cooking. You know, people who were actors or crew members would take turns uh, preparing the meals, doing whatever needed to be done. Uh, and that's that's something that I, I have never seen since. <laughs> I mean, yeah, just have, that's, the, that's the camaraderie. I mean, crews. The thing is, because in in Hollywood, of course, every it's unionized, and you know everybody has one particular job. They get paid well to do that job. Uh, they don't do anything else, <laughs> you know. But in uh, a film like this one, people didn't have that. You know, they were just there for the experience and for the fun of making this film, and everybody was all in, and we all enjoyed it. I mean, it was very, it was a jovial environment. There was a lot, there was, there was a lot of joking. And um, there's Nick, yeah. Uh, a lot of joking around and, you know, having fun. And when things didn't go as planned, you know, we would just find ways to improvise. And improvisation is something that um, I think that Uli had grown up with, with all the films that he'd made in Germany, you know, but we really hadn't done here. And think about it. and it was a, it was an interesting introduction for me because i you know i think learning that was a good it was a good skill to bring to los angeles to hollywood certainly if you wanted to work out here 
And it certainly sets you apart. And that's for sure. And uh, I have maintained uh, in close touch with several of the people from the movie. You know, I still see them occasionally from the boogeyman. And that was a long time ago. Yeah, no, it's 19, what, 1980 was. Yeah, 1980s when it was released, we shot yeah, it. Yeah, you fall, started shooting, yeah. Fall of 79 is when we shot. And then uh, after we shot the movie, uh, I went to Hollywood with Uli and Suki. And we we lived in the Tropicana Motel on Santa Monica Boulevard. And that's where we cut the film. Yeah. And that was not a, in those days, it was not a particularly nice area of town. <laughs> yeah, that's the unique thing about the Boogeyman is that, you know, like you said, it was shot in the end of, um, you know, the fall of 79, released in 80. And when you watch the film, it, it, it hits so much on both decades. It fully feels like kind of a mid 80s type structure. Yeah. And then, but it also has like, I mean, we're looking at this. I mean, and obviously I believe Am Amityville was a big inspiration, right? Um, right. Sure. you know, yeah. uh, by Yuli as well. And it, that, I think that's the, that's why this film kind of resonates with a lot of people. And with me is that you can tell the love of horror and cinema in general, you know, cause you know, Yuli coming from like tenderness of the wolves and, you know, cocaine cowboys, uh, those films, and then just coming out of the gate and coming to the U.S. and making a supernatural slasher film, it, it, it does have this art house type quality to it. Yes, that's what I mean when I say the the where Uli didn't really he kind of eschewed realism, you know he mm -hmm. he wanted to keep it surreal all of it and you know that's even the dialogue even the dialogue is, is not quite realistic and I think and that's kind of intentional as well. Uh, so do you think it adds to the, 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 the drama of the horror, you know, where you absolutely have no idea what's going to happen with this. And it's not, it, it's, it's, you know, even like getting this, this letter here, it is just, I, I don't think you'd find that in a, a contemporary you know, American film, you know, because it just doesn't, it isn't, you know, it, the realism is, is, is demanding now there's a demand for realism that didn't really exist then. And also, I think that's all part of Uli's European sensibility uh, that he brought. Can you talk a little bit about your editing style? Because the, the thing that really works with this um, with this film is how tight it is. And, and the editing is really great. Can you talk about working with Uli and kind of collaborating? Uh, what... Did he have a lot of control of what he wanted and told you, or did he give you kind of the freedom and you both learned together? No, he, he, Uli, Uli knew very much what he wanted. Uh, and I was, uh, you know, I, uh, like I say, I'd come from a documentary background, which was a very different style. Uh, but um, he, he also, he didn't give me a lot of choices in his shooting. You know, he would just shoot, you know, he didn't get a lot of coverage in his shots. You know, he would pretty much shoot it the way he wanted it to play. Uh, so what you would do is you would, the cutting was mostly choosing the best performances, you know, and going that way, but also creating some kind of a rhythm 
you know, where you would go from one character to the next and just determining at what point to, to cut cut away to each. Like in this scene, for example, back and forth <laughs> with cutting the chicken, you know, <laughs> with the characters, uh, you know, something like this. And I would, yeah, he would, he would leave it to me to come up with a rhythm that might build properly, you know. And then we'd, you know, we'd discuss it. We worked, uh, we, like I say, we, we stayed and we were in the Tropicana Motel on Santa Monica Boulevard and we had this suite there and I slept in the living room and Uli and Suki slept in the bedroom. And um, we would work until about midnight, one in the morning. And then I would walk down the street to Barney's Beanery for a beer and then come back. And then at seven in the morning, Uli would be playing back all the work that I'd done the previous day on the uh, chem editing machine that was right next to my bed. <laughs> so I'd wake up after four hours, listen to that, the sound of that. And then we'd work all day and then the next day would be repeated. And that was, that was our life for the fall of 1979. Um, sorry, that's my cat. <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. with, uh, with, with Suki, you know, she, she has kind of this unique uh, role in the film and in, in real life. I mean, you know, being with Yuli and writing the script and being the lead. I mean, she's obviously she's doing so much. Uh, how was that working relationship uh, between them? Um, you know, because she's so creative on on many fronts. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, they, I mean, well, they were very, very close, you know, they, they were kind of almost newlyweds at the time. Uh, and they, you know, enjoyed working together and they set out on the mission to, to make this happen. Uh, and, uh, and they did, you know, it just, uh, and I, I, like I say, I was, I got involved after the script was written. Uh, so I wasn't a part of that at all mm. or any of the writing. Uh, but they had, you know, they sat down, the three of them, uh, David, David was part of the screenwriting team, uh, David Sperling and uh, Uli and Suki, and they said they met together every day and came up with the script. It was, I don't think they spent a long time writing it. You know, I think it was pretty quick. Uh, and then uh, came down to shoot it before it got cold, before the winter hit in Bell Alton. Uh, but they were, you know, they were close and it was... Uh, and, you know, it's hard to to work with someone that you live with, uh, and yeah. they did, and they managed it, uh, managed it for years. And yeah, no, many films too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was a part of it for probably three films, as I remember. So maybe I was a part of it for maybe two years, I guess. Uh, and uh, did you have any? Um, uh, part in ha having Tim Krogh come in and do the score for this, because this score is probably one of the best horror scores to exist. Um, yeah. And he's only done this. I know he didn't, uh, he didn't do anything after that. And he was, um, he actually, I don't know, Tim kind of lost touch with him. He kind of yeah. uh, disappeared. Uh, and that was, he did that before the film was even finished, before the score was finished. Uh, we found him, I can't remember how we found him, but um, in Hollywood, it's not hard to find composers. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. Just, uh, in those days, I mean, the trades, you advertise for anything in the trades and you were just overwhelmed by people responding to your ad. 
uh, and yeah. talented people too, you know, talented people. So uh, we put and Uli was very, uh, very, you know, he was very specific, saying that he wanted uh, he was uh, that he was inspired by Halloween, and he wanted a score that had the same effect as Halloween. Uh, and so we met with Tim uh, and went over the score. And then I would uh, meet with him on spotting sessions, uh, going over the movie. And then before the film was finished, uh, Tim just kind of dropped out of sight. I uh, just don't know what, what happened to him, what became of him. Uh, so we just had, we had about two thirds of the score at the time. So I just had to kind of, try and find a way to to use what we had and piece together and actually create new pieces with what we had and finish the film with that. Uh, and I think it worked. Think yeah, it worked. no, it, it definitely did. Yeah, I think he he ended up, I believe, um, teaching at UCLA when I was doing some research and oh, okay. he did some commercials and like, I guess some TV for, Can and some, I guess he moved to Canada at some point oh. i don't know what part but um i did trace him back to canada at some point i just no one knows where he is or you know who he was really <laughs> he just he right. no he hadn't done anything else yeah i mean he didn't have any other scores and he's a talented guy you know he he he, oh, he did good yeah. work yeah so i just don't know i don't know what became of that i don't know why uh, how you know? But uh, I just figured that he just didn't uh, want to do movies anymore. He just yeah. decided he didn't want to do it, which is understandable. You know, there's a pressure uh, to movies that not every musician wants to feel. You know, and it's also a different. I mean, composing a score is a, is a different different skill. <laughs> I mean, a lot of the people and there are a number of people from bands have gone on to compose scores for movies. I mean, Mark Mothersbaugh and uh, Danny Elfman and a number of people. Very successful at it. Yeah, yeah. Mark Mothersbaugh has been doing it for quite yeah. some time. He yeah. actually just has a movie now in the theaters as we're as we're talking. I know he does. I know yeah, he does. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, and also Johnny Greenwood, you know, from yeah. Radiohead, you know, he's, he does magnificent scores. You know, so, yeah. Now this, I, I never could understand why this is in the movie. <laughs> I mean, I do know why it's in the movie, but it, I mean, regardless for where, why it was there at this particular point in time, and didn't really, didn't really know, but uh, <laughs> I think it served its purpose, certainly. Yeah. Now, with a couple people that we haven't discussed yet, with uh, you know, um, Jörg Walther that you know became uh, a DP um, for you know, you I believe he did like assistant camera work on this on this feature. Yeah, he was. We when we came, well, we we came to Hollywood to edit the movie, and. Uh, it's funny because those are all shoots we did we did in LA uh, to insert in. When we came to edit the movie, and the first cut of the movie, which is normally the longest cut, the rough cut of the film <laughs> was 56 minutes long. <laughs> now, you know, you need a minimum of 80 minutes without credits, you know, to get a, a distribution, to get a, a theatrical release. And we had 56 minutes, so we had to add 24 minutes uh, onto the film. And so uh, we, 
Uh, I had gone back home to Washington after I did the first cut, and then they, the assistant put it together, and Uli called me and said, guess how long the movie is? <laughs> it was 56 minutes, and I said, what are we going to do? He said, well, you got to come back out here. We've got to, you know, we've got to find a way to add 24 minutes. So I came back out and I said, well, you can't just add 24 minutes. There's just not enough. And we need to shoot more. So we um, we arranged to shoot all of the uh, John Carradine scenes. We shot those in Hancock Park uh, here in L.A. Uh, and we... We shot the graveyard scenes, the cemetery scenes, which we shot at Forest Lawn, which doesn't really look like Maryland in the movie. You know, pretty hard to make California look like Maryland. But uh, anyway, uh, we shot a number of different scenes, and and those scenes of Suki being dragged, things like that, with the those nightmare scenes. We shot those out here too, just as a way of of adding time to the film. You know, and I, I mean, I think we did it seamlessly it doesn't look like it was just thrown in to add time you know the things that we did put in there i think they contributed to the story and there's john and he john lived up in uh, montecito and i drove up and got him picked him up and uh he lived in this uh, uh this hotel on the water in montecito and he was pretty much retired at that point i don't think he was working much then but he he liked the idea of doing this doing this movie so he came down and we did all of his scenes in one day. Uh, brought him down in the morning. We shot his scenes and then drove him back <laughs> that night. And that was it. And he was great. He was great. He was game and 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 a, and a real pro. You know, he has such such wonderful credits. You know, he's been in his work and you know he's worked with the greatest directors. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask: Was that you know picking John Carradine to play the role? Were, was it just kind of trying to get something to attach to the film, like a name? Well, yes, yes. I mean, the idea was at this point, Wolf Schmidt was involved, who was a foreign sales agent who um, became the executive producer because he, he raised some money uh, for the reshoots uh, and for these scenes. And um, so it was his idea to get somebody with a name that we could use for foreign sales. You know, and John had a name that would work for that. So we had a, a you know, selection of, of certain names, and John was one of them. And so that's who we decided on. And also, Uli knew John Carradine because he had been in German films before, too. And so uh, Uli was very familiar with him. You go to sleep right away? Yeah, see, some of these... And some of these scenes too, we did. We 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 shot as reshoots in California, just the close-ups on the the inserts on the bedspreads and the like. Yeah, and the Halloween. But these, yes, on the yeah, all of this we did was was part of the reshoots for adding the twenty-four minutes. Uh, now, did anybody anticipate? how successful this film was going to be <laughs> because it was very successful at the time you can never anticipate that yeah you know i mean people who say they can i don't believe them <laughs> you know you just you don't know you hope for the best you never know what will be successful and what won't i mean look at all the films that were 
that were panned when they were released and ended up being huge hits. I mean, The Wizard of Oz was panned when it was released and, and a failure. And then it came around later, Out of Africa was panned when it was released by critics. And then it came out to be, and won the Academy Award for Best Picture. Uh, so, I mean, it happens. We didn't know. I mean, we hoped. We all had hope, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, but also, we knew that this genre was successful at the time, you know? Movies were doing well, and we just wanted to, to we hopefully, we wanted to, to catch the wave before it crested, you know? Uh, because there's so many of them being made at that point. A lot of these horror films, low-budget horror films, are being made, and we figured there would be just too too much, too many of them, you know, at some point. Uh, but I think the Boogeyman got in, got in time. You know, it was it, it came out before a number of the others, so people weren't weren't tired of them yet. Yeah, yeah, it just it hit at the right time. I mean, obviously, yeah. the the wave of. Uh these independent horror films went for quite a few years afterwards, but I think it hit it. It's a still going. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. It, it, it always yeah. comes back up, which is really, really nice. But yeah, this was, uh, I don't know, just the right place, right time. And it was just, it's kind of remarkable how, you know, successful, um, you know, the film was all, you know, and, and we had a little discussion about how it was, you know, even so popular, it got banned uh, for a little while in the UK. Um, as a video yeah. nasty. Yeah, yeah. I, I had no idea about that. I didn't right. even know. Yeah, yeah. They, they, it was just this kind of thing that just went around, um, you know, in the UK, and they just started, you know, it, it was it was kind of like there was sometimes no rhyme or reason, you know, they they, they would they would uh, basically blacklist these really ultra violent films, and then other films that just had a small dose of violence would get put on that list. And it, it, there wasn't like a formula that anybody was following. And then, then these films would get pulled from the shelves. You know, thankfully, it, you know, I think this released in the UK in like 81 theatrically, and it did, you know, very, very well. Um, and then it hit home video and then it was pulled after, I think it was after a couple of years. So it, it was it was on the shelf for a while. It's didn't I don't think it hurt the release at all. I think it actually encouraged more people to seek it out um because of this banning of, you know, films known as the video nasties, which is I think like 70 films. Yeah. Um, I, I, unless, unless it's unless it's the religious element. Uh, I, I there was there was a little bit of that behind it. It was kind of like, you know, moms and churches and stuff like that. Yeah, because the because the, you know, this is about good uh, God and the devil, you know, yeah, was, yeah. this one is about what it becomes. And that's that's the only thing I can figure um, is because of the priest getting murdered. And, you know, I, I just don't know. Because yeah, actually, yeah. The, the violence in this film is not that. I mean, there are movies that are far worse. Right, right. The ones that came later, you know, much, much worse than this. I mean, this isn't really very that graphic, you know. I mean, and, and when it is, it's comical. <laughs> you know, yeah. so, uh, I mean, intentionally so. So uh, that's why, and and you know, I think the sense of humor of that that's one thing that that some of these uh, horror films of that era, uh, I think that's what became they were became known for is of being campy, and for being funny, you know, at times, you know, because it's so extreme. 
So, you know, all of this, it's like, you know, when you ask what would come up with editing wise, like cutting away to all these little, these birds and the horses and everything else. I mean, that's just something, you know, in a, in a barn, you rarely saw the, these horror scenes in a barn. <laughs> it just didn't take place, you know, especially with all of the animals, the kids, the animals. And then, um, then you kickstart. This is what kickstarted horror films in barns because <laughs> later yes. on, so right. many horror films took place on barns. I and know. Barns. I, that's uh, right. And just started it. Started it later. So talk a little bit about, um, you know, bringing on a, as a producer. What were some of your um, kind of roles, and what, what was your kind of day to day like before kind of editing? Well, How often were you around during the production and? Helping well, I was there. Yeah. I was there from you know the first day of shooting, up until the film was finished. You know, I was there. Uh, but you know, my my role as a producer was mostly creative. Um, I didn't, you know, the 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 nuts and bolts work of, of producing. Uh, I I really didn't do much. I mean, Uli did a lot of that. Did most of that. You know, or, or would hire a production manager to take care of that as well. Uh, I was involved with uh, actors, uh, that is with actors and with the, the you know, the conceptually, the shooting and uh, the editing, you know, that was, that was pretty much it in my involvement. And then after the film was completed, I wasn't involved with that at all, really. That was just Uli. And then once he'd given it off to the foreign sales to Wolf Schmidt, uh, was, Wolf pretty much took care of all of that. And what about um, kind of Yuli as a person? Like not not so much as a as a director, like you know, friend and colleague. What what was what was he like? Well, Uli Uli was uh, very smart. Um, he was, uh, uh, you know, he was a, an actor first before anything else. Uh, and I think that he, he prided himself on his acting ability. And he could, uh, you know, one thing that Uli could do, unlike anyone I'd known, was put himself in a situation where he's being interviewed or, uh, or he's interviewing someone else, where he just um, will start talking about something that is pure invention. Uh, and yet he doesn't, he doesn't give any of it away, <laughs> you know, he will just, you know, find a way to talk his way through uh, without being, you know, really straight about it all. And, uh, and, and it'll work, it'll work, you know, so there's, we've all been in positions where, you know, being interviewed for a job or something like that, where, you know, we're asked a question where we don't really know the answer. Willie could find a way to convince the person that he knew the answer when he didn't. <laughs> now, this is a, a Lucinda was a, a I think a cousin of Suki's, you know, and her she had another cousin, uh, uh, Noni Jane Pratt, who was in this scene as well. You know, living in the house, another victim. You know, in these scenes. That's Jane. Yeah, Noni. Yeah, they're cousins. They're all cousins. So it was a family affair, the whole the whole shoot. Yeah. But I would also um, 
you know, get involved with when we were, there were times when we would be, uh, we would be looking for, for other investors, um, looking for people to do other creative work. Like I was, you know, with Tim and, and with other people that we needed uh, to help with editing or shooting or anything we needed. I would get involved with those people. I mean, I would meet with them and talk to them because, you know, Uli, because he actually hadn't been in America that long and didn't really know the culture that well. So he wasn't that that comfortable uh, being in it that much. And so he, he, would, he would often, that's one of the things I did as a producer. He would call me to help him out with that. I think it's different. All right. This I can't remember who the fellow the boy was who played this part where he came from. But he was a local, he was a local boy that they found. I think there was a local La Plata uh, players or something like that. There was a local little theater group where they found some of the actors for these scenes. Did, did they hold auditions for that at all? Or was it just people yes. that you knew? Oh, okay. No, they held auditions. Held auditions in the play though. Now with um, someone we didn't uh, speak about was um, with Philip Carr Forster. Um, yeah. Who was just, I believe, the still photographer on the film, but went on to be uh, <laughs> a camera operator yeah. on some huge, huge yeah. Hollywood well, films. He, he, he was a still photographer on Boogeyman. And then he actually, he came to Hollywood with us. He was in New York. Everybody was in New York then. I was in Washington. Everyone else was in New York. And the whole crew came down from New York. Uh, and then um, afterwards, Uli and Suki and I went out to uh, Hollywood, and then Philip came uh, to work as my assistant. Uh, he was the assistant editor. He was the first assistant. I had several. Um, he was the first one there. And then he, uh, you know, he photography was always his interest. Uh, and so he started working as a camera assistant in New York and LA and then became a camera operator and a very successful one. I mean, he was uh, pretty much one of the most in-demand camera operators in Hollywood. He did all of J.J. Abrams movies and uh, a number of Michael Bay's movies. And, you know, he was, uh, he was a hotshot camera operator. He doesn't, he has, he, he doesn't work now because he had a, uh, uh, a an accident in uh, New York. He got out of a taxi cab, and uh, a, a woman was getting out of a taxi cab, and he was on a bicycle, and uh, he got doored, as they say, and uh, broke his hip and made it really hard for him to give him the mobility to operate a camera. So that was sad. But it's it's still amazing that it comes. You know, so many careers and everything yeah. come from, you know. Uh, I, I mean, well, that's the thing is that that Horace always been frowned upon, still is, you know, doesn't get the recognition it deserves, but it also kickstarts so many careers and in, in, in so many different avenues. Um, yeah. 
I think it's because you get to be more well, creative with war films. That's the thing. Well, also, uh, a lot of them are low budget. And on low budget productions, you yeah. get opportunities, you know, like me. I mean, like I say, I had, I had the opportunity to learn how to make a feature film on this movie. You know, if it wasn't for this movie, I wouldn't be here today. I don't I don't know if I would or not, but uh, chances are I wouldn't. Uh, and it was all because of this movie. You know, it was my introduction into feature filmmaking. And I learned I learned how to do it all on this movie. And if this had been a more conventional film, I would never have done that. I would never yeah. have the opportunity to learn everything. I mean, only in a movie that was that was orchestrated like this, but with so many, so few people doing so much, so many different jobs. I mean, I was able to be a part of all of it, you know, and learn every aspect of filmmaking. I mean, that's, to me, that's a better education than going to film school, personally, you know, because you learn it all and you learn through experience. It's hands-on experience. Oh, yeah, no, film school doesn't teach you, like, oh, shit, something no. went wrong. How do we fix it? <laughs> you know? No, no. It's, no, here you you know, you have your group of electric crew to show you <laughs> how to do unique things. Yeah, exactly. Off, exactly. You know? I mean, you know, and then, but in those days, I mean, there were only a very few film schools. You know, you had NYU and, and UCLA, USC, and then uh, University of Texas had a film school. But that was pretty much it back then. You know, now there's hundreds of film schools and every major university has a film department. Yeah. Right? You know, I mean, you think all those people are going to get jobs in the movie business? I don't think so. You know, well, just sometimes you just got to do it yourself, you know, yeah. and get get people you trust and people that want to make movies and pick up a camera and do it. Just like how it's pretty much always been done aside from Hollywood, you know, features. Yeah. Uh, well, it's, listen, it, it's it's it should be more about the storytellers, you know, and how to tell a story mm -hmm. rather than the deal makers. You know, and 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 sadly, it, it's so much of it has become about the deals, you know, rather than the stories, uh, which is unfortunate. And now it's you know it's very hard to get any kind of movie made without names, yeah, right? Yeah. But streaming, thanks to streaming, I mean, there are opportunities to tell stories. And some every now and then, you know, a movie that is just a really well told story without any recognizable names will get through. And something we haven't touched on, and I know, like, obviously it was, um, I mean, I, I'll let you kind of tell the story, um, aside from, you know, Boogeyman that we've been talking about, because of the success, uh, the sequel that came out, which was, you know, kind of a mix between this film and some newly shot stuff. Um, was that just because it was so in demand at the time? Yeah, that was still trying to ride the wave, you know. Yeah. Uh, from the success of this movie. So Uli determined that we could do a sequel for very little money if we just used a lot of the same footage from the first movie and then shot some additional footage in the house where we were all living together at the time, which was uh, the house here in, in West Hollywood. And uh, so we did, we shot everything in the kitchen and living room you know, of that movie and then interspersed it with uh, uh, footage from the original movie and uh, and put it out, put it together. And, you know, I don't know how the film did, but, uh, you know, I'm sure it did okay. Yeah, no, it, it, it did just, it did just fine. I mean, now I don't think it's, 
talked about as much as like as the first one um but you know th there are sequels that have done that prior um and i or not prior to boogeyman i'm saying after boogeyman and i think that may have <laughs> kick-started something else because it's been used a, a few times um since then the sequels to rehash and reuse um footage from the previous films so yeah 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 no no that's that's true uh yeah that and the second one we did before we did uh boogeyman 2 though we did olivia uh, mm -hmm. which was the movie about the london bridge moving to arizona <laughs> yeah i don't know if you've seen that one or not oh yeah no we, yeah we uh vinegar syndrome released that as um as right. well yeah vinegar syndrome just released evansville tear oh um, I see. okay too so yeah that was a, a devonsville was after my time i think i don't think i was involved with that one but uh but i was still uh uh i was still around <laughs> at that point in devonsville and uh, this is suki's cousin noni uh, the victim here now were they um local actors or were they just friends of the family and basically asked that they want to be a part they're of cousins it? no they're cousins uh, lived in new york uh mm -hmm. and uh but yeah they were all they had all, they were all going to the neighborhood playhouse in new york and studying acting so they all you know had had you know aspirations to be actors professional actors but i think this was the first for all of them i think this is the first screen credit that they had mm -hmm. I think so. i'm not sure about that but i think it was and then we uh, uh when we came to hollywood that is when yakin uh got involved yakin came out i think yakin lived in baltimore and uh he he knew Uli somehow, I mean, through Germany. Um, he had a relationship with Uli. I'm not quite sure uh, what that relationship was, where it started. But then Jakin came out, and David wasn't available to come out and shoot in, in California. So Jakin came out and, and shot the footage in California. And I think Jurg was his assistant uh, out here. And then Jurg ended up uh, uh, DPing when Jakin wasn't available when Yakin went back to Baltimore. Then you're a DP, and gotcha. I think you're a DP. I think on Boogeyman Two, I think so. Yeah, Yakin actually shot uh, Cocaine Cowboys, which was previous right. to. That's where that was. Yes, yeah, so that's that's how they knew each other, or they, they may have known each other beforehand. But that was the first, I think, time they worked together. Yeah, and that was I. That was before I knew Uli. I didn't meet I didn't meet Uli until after that. You know when when this mm -hmm. was. So, and I met them all through David. So, I mean, just looking, looking at these scenes individually, I mean, I just, I can't help but laugh and think about them now. And he said, okay, now this mirror has a power, you know, so hold it and <laughs> it's gotta be powerful. Okay, what do I do? <laughs> yeah, it's not easy.
Yeah, I mean that could have been one of the things too with uh, killing killing the kid that could have, that could have raised some red flags in the UK probably as well. So. Oh yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. That's right. Yeah. But it's just, I mean, there's so many far many worse. Well, wor also things. the idea of it, something killing like you know the, a medicine cabinet getting hit in the head of the medicine cabinet. <laughs> yeah. She's gone, and the kid the, the window sash right. You know, the window sash comes down, bonk. You know, he's dead. <laughs> it's just. Uh, so being that everybody was kind of very busy around this time i mean because it was almost yuli was like almost putting out a film every year um in the early 80s um uli uli had so i mean by the time he died he had his number of credits were like oh yeah I've ever seen, you know? yeah, especially as an actor too yeah but even after he came here and, you know, all the, the films he directed and these other shorts and the like, I mean, I, I actually, I didn't, I lost touch with Lily, you know, in around, I guess, the late, late 80s, maybe early 90s, I lost touch with him. Um, but when I, I just recently, I mean, uh, I think I probably, when you contacted me, I looked up Uli's credits to see, I mean, or no, it was when he died and I, and I heard that he died and I, looked up his obits, et cetera. I think he had like 95 director credits or something like that. Uh, yeah, he's he's an incredibly, um, was incredibly busy, busy guy. And that was the thing is I, my, I guess my question was, did anybody just sit back and, and then kind of enjoy the success of the movies? Cause it was just like, get to work on another one, which is great. I mean, that's what you no, obviously you know, have. Uli, the thing is Uli, uh, Uli had a, a, a just a remarkable drive that he, like he never, and I understand this, but like he wouldn't, he, the idea of taking a vacation or anything like that never appealed to him. You know, he, he never wanted to do anything like that. He just wanted to work, you know, and, and just when you're finished with one movie, make another one, come up with another one right away and immediately, you know, work hard to make that happen. Uh, because you know, vacation in his in his mind, vacations are dull, and you know, uh, making a film is fun. <laughs> That's you know, it's not work; it's fun, and it's a challenge. And uh, he was constantly doing that, and you know, and that he's not alone like that. I mean, a lot of us are like that, but he was always able to pull it off. You know, I mean, my, a lot of us would just spend forever just trying to get the the pieces together to make a film, you know, the funding and the casting and everything else. I mean, you can just spend months and even years on one film trying to make that happen. Uli could do it in no time. And he always found a way to find people to help him with no money. You know, he would get, you know, young people just starting out and some the older people who, you know, had weren't really doing well at the time and wanted to get involved in something. And he would just find them. And I never knew how he found them, you know, but he would, you know, and this happened like after he came out to Hollywood and after I wasn't involved with him anymore. I mean, he would, I would hear about, he would be over, he was in Hollywood, then he was over in Venice, you know, and he's in Santa Monica and he would have this little, you know, repertory uh, of people who would help him with his latest film. And when I did see him, there would always be a different group. You know, he would have a different group of people who were helping him out and he would find them. And that was his, his, his genius really, was to be able to find people and convince them to come work for very little money 
and you know they will learn from what he from what he's doing and i did i certainly did you know i think everyone did you know through our experiences with Oli. yeah and i think that was the cool thing about his career is that he continued with with that kind of formula through the decades like with even the younger crowd up until like even his passing um you know still kind of making independent films and uh, yeah. I mean, even, even one of his un, uh, well, I, I don't, I'm trying to still figure out if he actually finished it or not, but he basically remade uh, Boogeyman in like 2013 and the film was never, ever released. Yeah, I saw that on, on his credits. I saw that. Yeah, yeah, Boogeyman reincarnation. And, um, you know, even then working with an independent crowd and and still doing yeah. what he was doing back you know in the 70s it's, oh, yeah. it's it's quite remarkable that he you know he obviously found his niche and that's uh it's where he was comfortable you think i'm crazy don't yeah you? yeah he and you know suki suki was highly instrumental in that you know uh when he met suki i mean she helped you know she was his muse at the time and um, got him working in New York and introduced him to a lot of people. I mean, the films he made in New York, a lot of those were people that he met through Suki. And uh, and then she you know, was instrumental in bringing him out to Hollywood. And uh, that's when his life really changed. And he started to work as a producer. Because remember, in Germany, I mean, he was an actor. And yep. then uh, he the film, when he directed, it was because of Fassbender. Now, Fassbender arranged all that for him because he produced the movies for him. And then when Uli came out here, he had to function as a producer as well, which he hadn't done before. And uh, and he was able to do it. And basically, the I mean, the main job of a producer is to make it happen. And that's what he would do. He would make them happen. You know, whatever it takes, whatever you need to do to make it happen, you do. And that's what Uli would do. Yeah. You know, find the money, and then you find the people. And then you find whatever else you need to find. <laughs> and, and and clearly he was a very eccentric t filmmaker, uh, storyteller. And I think working on his own independently, he wanted to tell the stories that he wanted to tell. Because I, I don't think anything I've seen pretty much, I say, probably have seen every film he's he's made. There's no studio stuff or it doesn't feel like a studio is behind no. anything, you know. No. Um, so obviously that, I mean, I, I think any well, filmmaker kind of wants you know, that. But well, the thing through. is, Uli, Uli structure was never a, a major, a major point for Uli. I mean, he, he would like to improvise as he went. And I, a good example of that is that, you know, I was, uh, I remember being in his office. This was uh, after really my association with him, I wasn't that involved with him anymore, but I went to see him in his office when he was starting to fund his movies through foreign sales, uh, which he wasn't doing when I was working with him. Uh, and he was meeting with these buyers from foreign territories in his office over at the Sunset Gower Studios. And he, he these buyers would come in and sit down across across from his desk and Uli would start telling him the story uh, of this film. And then he would go on for about 10 minutes and then he would say, oh, and then it gets even more exciting from there. And uh, so, and, and sometimes they would give him a deposit 
you know, on the film, just hearing the story as he told it, which wasn't even the entire story. And then when they would leave, I would say, what is this? I said, I'm not familiar with it. Where did this story come from? He said, I just made it up. And just now? He says, yes. And he could do that. You know, he would just, on the fly, he would just make up a story and, and invent as he went along, right? Whatever felt right that came into his head at the time, that's what he would use. And then the next group of buyers would come in and he'd tell the same story, but of course it would, it would you know, morph into something else while he was telling it because he would get new ideas while he was telling these people. I mean, it was pretty remarkable to see. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's very clear that he would do that in his films. Yeah, uh, well, also because the films, what, what else would happen with the films is even though there'd be a script, they would change every day. Uh, and, you know, the dialogue would change every day. And even sometimes what would happen would change, which, uh, so nothing would be, I mean, there was no such thing as a storyboard with all these movies, you know, we just you know, never bothered with that. You just, you know, shoot it the way it felt like shooting it and what seemed right. And of course, you're, 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 you know, subject to all of the natural elements as well you know, uh, when you're shooting. So everybody deals with that. But uh, you find that when you work in Hollywood, most people like to storyboard. You know, DPs like to storyboard. <laughs> That's for sure. So they can make a shot list. Uh, and with all these movies, uh, I don't think we really ever had shot lists that I can remember. You know, they would discuss it about what to do. You go, but basically you just go on to the location, go onto the set and just decide where to put the camera and go from there. Oh, come on, just some right? No rehearsals. I don't remember any rehearsals on the boogeyman. As far as I can remember, none. But I, 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 I feel like that is what gives his movies the charm that they do have. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. You know, and it, 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 makes it wouldn't work for everybody. Right, no. You know. No, it, it is what makes them distinctive, no question. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, the, the, there's obviously good and bad um, to that, but it's, I think with him, it really did work because it gave um, the films and, and speaking with Boogeyman directly here, it, it gives a little something that's off kilter that, you know, yeah. doesn't feel right in the sense of, you know, it's... you're watching something you shouldn't be watching. Right. Yeah. You see this, this scene here, the, these kids, the guys were local guys, but like the, the two, the two women here, one was the makeup artist and the other was the uh, wife of the sound recorders. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. So everybody played several roles here. That's a true, true independent movie then. Yeah. No, yeah. that's exactly that, that's, yeah. that's how you know is it, you need to wear, have a, you know, a hat rack for ha ha most of the jobs that you have. So makes total sense. But it also explains That's, that things really weren't storyboarded and planned out no. because it was like, who wants to be in this movie real quick? No. no, that's right. Well, that but see, that was also part of the appeal for Uli. I mean, that's what made it fun. He he loved that. He didn't want it any other way. You know, he didn't want it all plotted out because it was, as he would put it, he liked, uh, I think he used the term anarchic filmmaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
And it, it, it really does kind of, uh, you know, and he, he you know, I did, obviously didn't know him. You can you can uh, elaborate on this comment that I have, but he was a very eccentric filmmaker and he didn't like to be contained. So having a script and kind of a process and storyboards that would lock him into doing something. And that doesn't seem like the filmmaker at all. That, no. that he was, you know. No, and and you know, Uli could never have made a studio film. I mean, never. no, I don't think you know. From from what I've heard and what I've seen, there's, you know, it seems like he was open to work with and and a good time and fun, but he really wanted to do his his own thing. I think he would have loved to have been offered one. Yeah, <laughs> uh, he wasn't that I'm aware of. Uh, and I think he would have loved to have been offered one. And he liked the idea of it, you know, because he still had coming from Germany, the idea of Hollywood was still Hollywood. You know what I mean? And and mm -hmm. that was a measure of success when you're in Hollywood. Uh, but he, the confines of a studio picture, I, I don't think Willie would have known how to operate like that. I really don't think he could have. He wouldn't have wanted to, you know. He would have liked the idea of it, and uh, yeah, yeah, being offered something, but yes, being wanted, you know, of course, you yeah, know, that's yeah. important. But um, I don't think he he would uh, being able to to work like that. I don't think he would have ever been able to. No, I've I've often you know referred to Yuli as a as a true Andy? artist, you know, of of uh, yeah. Of his of his work, <laughs> no, it's Such true. A neat little kill too. Yeah, yeah, no, he, he, Uli, Uli was a genuine artist, no question. Yeah, no question, he was. Yeah, well, I mean, also evidenced by what the story I was telling you about when he was making up the story to the the foreign salespeople, you know, the buyers, right? Just uh, coming up with whatever he could come up with on the spot. Well, that's what he believed filmmaking should be like. And that's and that was filmmaking as it was done when he was when he was in his early days in Germany, you know. I mean, Fassbender worked like that. I mean, yeah. Uli would tell me stories about Fassbender getting on an airplane to fly from uh, from Munich to New York and write a screenplay by the time he'd landed. Yeah, some some people some people can yeah. work like that, and and yeah. and I, I I really do think I mean it works. Things work for everybody. There's always there's no right way. There's no wrong way, in yeah. in in creativity. Some people can make a movie in three days. Some would take six months. You know, oh, everybody works differently. And I I think, yeah, with Yuli, he was obviously very fast at what he was doing. He was very he had a lot of ideas, and he needed to get them all out. You know, that's yeah. one of the reasons why he probably made so much during his time. No, that's right. That's yeah. right. He loved, like I say, he was always on to the next. He was always on to the next before the first one was finished. You know, yeah. he was thinking about what he wanted to do next. And certainly. Yeah. And I guess that helps when you have, you know, again, with the same, you know, somewhat of the same cast and crew uh, through the film, they know how you operate. And I guess that was easier, obviously, for him because they kind of knew anything could happen. Uh, so just be prepared, you know, um, yeah. for, for changes, yeah. which obviously helps, uh, you know, the crew if that is fluid, you know, obviously, so. Sure, sure. 
No, he, you know, he liked, really liked being, working with people he was comfortable with. No, no question. Okay, but first you go rinse it off. And that's how it was on The Boogeyman, certainly. And even on the films we did here, once we came out here too, it was always very, very small crews. Very small crews and and everyone, and everyone, it was funny. It was funny because everybody had a sense of humor about what we were doing. You know, the types of films we were making for a very small budget. And uh, it was having fun was a large part of it. We worked hard. I mean, very hard and very long days. And that part wasn't so much fun, you know, but the camaraderie was fun. Yeah. Well, yeah it's a family or you're in there in there together. Now, as far as kind of, you know, being that this was such a close, like, you know, with with friends, family, uh, was there any like screening that was local that everybody could go to? Were you a part of that? Because, you know, that seems like something would be such when a the film was finished, you mean? What is that? When the film was finished? Yeah. When the film was finished, was there a local screening for cast um... and crew and no, because, you know, because the, a lot of the people were spread out everywhere. You know, they were, uh, it was shot in Maryland and some of the local people were in Maryland and then the crew was out in New York and the actors. Uh, and then we were in LA, you know, afterwards. So uh, when it was finished, I don't remember. I don't remember. The, the first time I saw the movie, I mean, uh, of course, I saw the movie when we, you know, when we scored it, uh, and then screened it there in the in the cutting room. But the first time I saw it uh, for real was in uh, uh, Times Square in New York, and I was, uh, and we actually we all went uh, went with uh, Uli and Suki, and uh, Felicity, uh, Nick, and just the family. I think Noni was there, and we went to this this theater on Seventh Avenue in New York. Uh, where they showed a lot of the horror films at the time. And the theater was packed. And I had never seen an occasion where people talked to the screen like that. And yeah. people were talking to the characters in the film. I hadn't seen that before, but they were all talking to, you know, there was a, the scene where, where Timmy is in the shower and he's, he's talking to uh, Noni and she says, oh, you know, I know, uh, Timmy, I know you're there. And it, it's really the boogeyman who is there behind the shower curtain. And she's, Noni thinks that it's her brother who's hiding back there. And she says, I know it's you, Timmy. And this guy behind us in the theater yells out, that's not Timmy, that's the boogeyman. <laughs> no, that's great. And that went on through the whole movie. <laughs> The whole movie was like that. You know, people yelling at the screen. I thought, this is great. People are having a good time, you know? And they did in those kinds of movies, you know? They would just, they would talk to the screen. I remember the first time I, uh, first time I ever really saw that, I think it was with The Exorcist. We went to see The Exorcist and people were just yelling at the screen through the whole movie, <laughs> talking to what was happening, making a comment. Yeah, it's something that I've always been fascinated by with, um, you know, even as a kid growing up, going to see kind of these schlocky horror films like in the 90s and early 2000s is before there was like, you know, full on cell phones with, you know, smartphones and whatnot. It was a different kind of atmosphere 
with people that had a good time and and um, you were kind of in it together. Yeah. Um, well, that's the communal experience of of going to a theater yeah. that we we've lost, you know, during the pandemic. And uh, I don't know if we'll ever get back. Uh, hopefully we will. But, uh, you know, the fact with streaming now, uh, what streaming has provided, people watch movies at home by themselves or with their families. And you don't have that experience of sitting in a theater with a, a large group of people uh, uh, enjoying the movie simultaneously and responding simultaneously. And you're also influenced with, by people's laughter and their guests, mm -hmm. yeah. you know. Whatever people are feeling, the the and this is what you try to create as a filmmaker as well is an emotion. You want to create these grace notes so that the audience can respond to simultaneously, you know, collectively. That's what you want. That's part of your motivation, and you can't do that with streaming films. And it's it's a loss. It's definitely yeah. I, I I've made that comment before. You know, I, I I don't think you need an audience to enjoy a film, but I think it really does. Uh, you know, and it, make the film yeah. either more intense or magnify certain things because it it embellishes your your feeling. Right, absolutely. and absolutely. And I, I've been to you know films at you know film festivals where you're there to watch the movies. And the experience sitting at a film festival with people that are ready to see something in a sold out crowd is amazing, you know, yeah. and, and unfortunately it, sure. you can't really replicate that. Um, even in the like kind of, you know, you're, you're I, I, maybe if you're like in LA or something like that, but if you're in a small town going to the theater and, you know, there's only 10 people there. It's kind of hard to have anything, uh, yeah, you know, right. happen where it's like, a, you know, like you said, a communal thing where people are into it. But um, well, also, it's just I mean, there are now movies that are events or are, are like Marvel movies, et cetera. But, you know, when I was growing up, I mean, when something like uh, Lawrence of Arabia or Dr. Zhivago or movies like that were going to play at a, at a big theater, it was an event. You know, and there'd be an intermission in the middle where people would go out into the lobby, right, and, you know, have coffee and talk, and then the lights would blink when it was time for them to go back into the theater, and it was just, that was all part of the experience, and that's all part of what filmmaking was designed for, too, is to create that experience. Yeah. Um, it's a loss, you know, not having that. I hope we, I hope we regain it. I hope we do. You know, oh, this is, yeah. Suki, the, the mirror going into her eye. That wasn't easy to create. That's that shot of her, of the mirror piece going into her eye. We had to do it in reverse, where the piece fell out of her eye. And then we just played it in reverse going into her eye. Now, when you did um, some of these... Uh... Uh, not reshoots, but adding uh, sequences. Yeah. But what 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 were some of the things that were kind of either stretched out or used? Because obviously we flash back to the dream sequence, you know, uh, or not dream yeah. sequence, but the you know the beginning of the intro of the film like a couple times. So obviously that kind of stretches out your time. But was there anything like significant that you know maybe tied the film together that was in the kind of so-called reshoots? Well, there were several, yeah, several of these these transitional scenes uh, where we go back to their childhood, mostly. 
but um you know this sort of thing too going through the barn you know you extend that uh extended the scene in the barn earlier with all of the chickens and the horses and the like you know that was to extend it out so we needed we got the playing time that we needed yes yeah i this was shot on location in real time this part here Uncle Ernest in the barn. I still can't remember how that was done. <laughs> he wasn't really hanging up there, I know that. <laughs> and this is um, this last kind of uh, 10, 15 minutes of the film, it kind of amps up. Uh, yes quite a bit yeah, which is the, that's we, we built this well this this well the uh that robert morgan who is the production designer was actually suki's father-in-law uh who was not father-in-law but stepfather who was married to felicity uh her mother who plays aunt helen and he built the well right out in front of the house there uh then we did the, the only pyrotechnics we had in the film were the the fire in the well at the end and that was the last night of shooting so we did that but see certain things i mean it's like a you see that that uh, uh placeholder there the, the oven mitt that says cochon on it i mean in the 1970s in the rural south which is where this is supposed to be i don't think people would have those kind of oven mitts <laughs> sitting around <laughs> But really, you know, he to him, he says, oh, I don't care about that. I just don't care. He says, I kind of like it. It's not realistic. the lighting in all of this um, yeah it just really really pulls the film together for its finale yeah here it becomes completely surreal yeah yeah with the lighting of course we had to uh we had to have people underneath all of the tables during all <laughs> of shaking them <laughs> and throwing this was fun actually because everybody was standing on the side throwing things you know shaking tables and throwing items cans flatware See, and there's this, the i think this this might have been why in in the video nasty thing maybe it's because <laughs> of the priest i don't know well that this was uh Part of the cover, uh, one of the cover uh, art was the priest, oh, right. uh, yeah. bloody. Um, I think one of the other covers was obviously like the window seal, like looking in, like the brick with the, with the window. I think was one of the other yeah. famous covers. But yeah, the, the the priest being bloodied was was pretty popular. Interesting. Holding the cross, which yeah, definitely could have. Yeah, I don't know. Some noses. I, I don't know. I don't know if it's possible to find the answer to that question. <laughs> 
as I said, there's a lot of no rhyme or reason behind behind it. It was just it was just a, a weird agenda. Yeah. For people, I mean, we have it all the time with banning books and other bullshit. So, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Right. Right. That wasn't easy. Also, creating a flame out of a sink. Somebody <laughs> drops that thing. <laughs> but, you know, The Boogeyman, as those films go, really had a small body count. You know, a lot of those films, those horror films, had a, had a much larger body count for people who were victims, you know. I think Halloween did. Yeah, and it, you know, it's it's one of those things where, you know, uh, it really does rely on a big supernatural element. So, you know, you, you have that kind of room to... Well, it, what, what I think set the Boogeyman apart was the concept, mm -hmm. the idea of the mirror, you know, the spirit in the mirror that gets released 20 years later. I mean, that was original. And uh, it was, and I think that's what people responded to more than anything. It was a unique concept. Yeah, this is our last night of shooting. How often do you think that you've seen Boogeyman other than just until this recently? This is the first time I've seen it in, in, well, since the film was finished. I mean, since I saw it on in Times Square in oh, 1980. Wow. <laughs> so over 40 years so so, so with that this gap this is forest lawn here what is it this is forest lawn cemetery in, okay in Hollywood. Uh, this was another thing that we shot that we, we it was a part of the reshoot out west it wasn't in the original script i mean the original film was supposed to end at the well I do kind we of like this. We shot this when Uli started thinking about doing a sequel. A little bit of the mood changes too, which I like. Yes. You got to stop suffering, Mason. Starts off dark and gets brighter and brighter as Suki comes in. Yeah. No, so with that gap, um, you know, even watching it now, uh, what is anything has changed for you or you're even prouder than you were before? Like, what's your initial thoughts? Well, it's just it, it you know, I remember I remember the experience by watching it. You know, I hadn't thought about the experience very much in all the years because I've, I've been involved with so many other films, you know, in the meantime. And so this one, because it was my first, you know, is its own special, has its own special place. Uh, and, um, you know, and, and seeing the people, I mean, that's the, for me, just seeing all the people during the shoot that, that we're, we were all, we all became very close, you know, a number of us. I mean, I became very close to, you know, Nick and, and Suki and the people who came out west with, you know, the Uli. So, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, nostalgic for me in that regard. 
one more day doesn't seem so long. I'm still in touch with them now, you know. Yeah. Just seeing <laughs> seeing that is interesting to me. Well, I mean, you all did something right because here we are 40 years later. Yeah, yeah. I know. That's true. That's true. Yeah, something it still lives. It still lives, just yeah. like the mirror. <laughs> no, absolutely. Uh, well, here we are. We're kind of wrapping up, um, you know, with okay. the credits. I appreciate you doing this, and I hope anybody listened to this obviously enjoyed it. Um, but, uh, yeah, any any last um words thoughts um leaving our audience with uh, an ending comment here oh well no you know only that i think that you know i'm glad that the boogeyman still has still has life you know and the film for it i'm glad that it can still be appreciated for its originality you know and uh, for 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 it's just you know the unique concept that it was and and how it, it was brought to the screen and how it worked and listen I'm forever grateful for the opportunity it gave me because it changed my life and a number of others and I, I like I say I probably wouldn't be here today where I am if it wasn't for this film. Thank you.